This is an episode on how the U.S. keeps, maintains its hegemonic status. In other words, what the U.S. government must do to stay a superpower, or at least remain a great power. Now, I have touched on this topic on prior episodes. Let me tell you my five criteria for being a great power from back in episode 30. These are my criteria, so you'll not find these in history books. Students, aware, don't use it in exams or essays unless you want to big fat zero, but at least this is my opinion. So here goes. Number one, great powers fight with one another, i.e. great powers fight other great powers. And this can happen both directly and indirectly. Think Syria in 2011 and Ukraine in 2023. Number two, they kill innocent people at home. Now, think of wayward cops in the US or the death penalty. These could be woefully weak points, actually, because the US doesn't do this often enough. But this is what great powers do. They kill their own innocent people. Number three, they also kill innocent people abroad. And the US is absolutely fantastic at this. Biden, at the end of 2021, killed a bunch of innocent Afghans as he left Kabul. No one cared. He got away with it, and it secured the US as a great power in the process. Number four, they must be brutal to smaller powers, often third-party players. Think Cuba or the US actions against North Korea. Those brutal embargoes called sanctions really hit people, common people, in those countries. And number five, destruction of entire societies is completely normalized, and a great power needs to be open to genocide. Think about one million dead Iraqis. No one really cares. That's my five. Now, go back to episode 30 for more on those. But as you can see, the US is, in my definition, absolutely a great power in the great power sweepstakes. Also, in my humble opinion, for more on power projectiony stuff, you should really listen to episode 103 on the military-industrial complex, episode 78 on the New World Order, episode 77 on the rise and fall of the petrodollar, episode 69, Pax Americana, addition to that episode 30 on the great powers that I mentioned. Look, or at least in the case of a podcast, listen. Bottom line, great powers kill babies. Let me repeat, great powers kill babies. And they do it because it's fun for them. This is a fact. 7,000 years of nicely documented human history tells us this. You don't become great powers by hugging trees. You can do that after you've brutally blown up innocent families. The blowing up of innocent families is the prerequisite that you must have before hugging that tree. As I record this in 2023, the US, to me, is a great power. It is a major hegemon. But that hegemonic position has been challenged not by another Anglo-Saxon country, but by China, and to a lesser degree, Russia. It, the US, was the hegemon, complete hegemon, from 1990 to 2014. In 2023, it no longer is the only hegemon and hasn't been the sole superpower for a while now. The unipolar moment is long gone. The US, though it is not a superpower, is still a great power. And in that role, it is a first among unequals. But also, as 7,000 years of somewhat patchy recorded human history will tell you, 
all powers screw up. Everything is up, everything is down, everything comes, everything goes, and everyone has their day in the sun. Those caveats out of the way, I want to focus on practical policy decisions of the US government and what they can do and maybe should consider. In a paradox of events in the last two years, I have noted that the US has enhanced its standing amongst its own allies. So it appears stronger vis-a-vis its proxy countries like Canada or Australia, but has lost tremendous influence vis-a-vis its non-vassal states like China, India, or Russia. It is an important point and international relations watchers should take note. Let us start with geography of the United States of America. Geography both helps and hinders the US. Helps because in the north, you have the vassal state of Canada. To the east, you have the North Atlantic Ocean. To the west, you have the North Pacific Ocean. The only real borders the US has is one with Russia, where Siberia meets Alaska, in the south, on the long border with Mexico. The US also has maritime borders with Cuba and a bunch of Caribbean countries. To make sure it owns the North Atlantic, the US has military bases in Western Europe. To make sure it owns the North Pacific, the US has military bases in South Korea and in Japan. This way, the US can protect the homeland by pushing the US border out to North Korea and the South China Sea on one side and the Russian border would say Latvia on the other. The advantage of pushing the borders out means that you can engage your enemies over there and not over here. The populations of Europe, Japan and South Korea are ultimately too weak and too domesticated to do anything about it anyway but they will be the cannon fodder if push comes to shove. But again, the US homeland only has one real land border, and that's the one with Mexico, because all the others are maritime. The problem with this setup is that where the US does have a land border, that land border is wide open with illegal crossings like there is no tomorrow. Thus, the whole point of having those military expenses in places like Japan and Germany is mitigated if anyone can enter the homeland from the south. And it's a huge, massive, geopolitical gaping hole. The other problem with the continued occupation of places like South Korea, Japan, Estonia, or Poland, is that you end up realizing and owning their mental models of geopolitics and their security concerns. Oh, and their domestic politics too. As such, North Korea is a threat. China is a threat. Russia is a threat. The US has such a big military spend that in reality, none of those countries should really be a threat. But they are a threat and have always been seen as such, reinforced even more so by the domestic concerns of those occupied countries. I guess another downside the US has, geographically at least, is that though it is safe on the North American continent, with abundant access to food and fuel. Being on the North American continent is like being in the boonies, a village somewhere in the middle of nowhere. If you want to make it big, you need to go to where the action is. So, to be relevant, the US needs to force itself on places that honestly, truly matter. Because the North American continent matters to very few people. So, what and who really matters? It's the same places, in my view, that have always mattered for thousands of years. India and China, primarily. 
but also the Russian landmass, the Middle East, say Iran and the Arab world, plus Turkey, and to some degree Southeast Asia. This is where all the people live, where all the resources are, the consumers, the action, the fun, the conflicts, the everything. You are a big power in the Americas, but without fiddling in the Asian region, in particular India and China, you can never really become a great power. That's why the US needs to focus its attention constantly in Asia, in those regions. If India and China are down, or destroyed, or occupied, or divided, then someone else, somewhere else, can become a great power. But if India and China, both together or just one of them, is on the rise, then the great power elsewhere will see pain or not even become a great power or lose its great power status. The Indian landmass, the Chinese landmass, is so important, if for nothing else but the numbers of people it holds, that it is the single most geopolitically important area of the planet. Without humans, geopolitics matters little. No one is considering the geopolitics of the zebras. The rivers and the mountains only matter if humans live there. For the US to be relevant, it needs to be in India or China or destroying them. Thus, the only way Europe, including the US and USSR, could have become great powers in the past is if these two historically critical civilizations, India, China, are down and out. In the 1700s, they saw a decline. In the 1800s, they saw a collapse and then occupation. And in the 1900s, at least in the later half of the 1900s, they saw some recovery. Allowing, thus, Europe in those centuries, including the US, to rise. So for the US to be someone and to take the war to them over there rather than fight them over here, it must be poking its nose in India and China's business. Or ideally, pitting them against one another so they can destroy one another and America can just carry on. We can't forget Russia, who basically is the world's food and fuel and resource basket. It also happens to be the world's biggest country, and it also happens to have a ton of nuclear weapons. So to keep supremacy, the Americans may need to do something with Russia, maybe break it into little bits and pieces so it can manage it more easily, or destroy it somehow. Russia aside, for the US to keep its place in the world, it needs to obsess about China. It needs to obsess about India. As I have already stated, their rise, India and China, is a mortal threat to the US. Ideally, if you are America, you will want the Chinese and the Indians to fight one another to the bitter end. That way, the US goes back to its superpower state. At worst, China must be engaged in its own neighborhood. India needs to be engaged in its own neighborhood. And there are ways and means of doing just that. If Pakistan can be employed to keep India in check, then India can be kept to keep China in check. See how that works? If Pakistan can be employed to keep India in check, then India can be kept to keep China in check. This has worked well in the past. Pakistan, the forever obedient partner, has a policy of deaths by a thousand cuts against India. However, China is also all over Pakistan now, and that has messed up the US influence there. China has also retained the same policy that the US had, which is death by a thousand cuts against India. All this jihadi stuff is nonsense. Both the US and China keep a blind eye to that. They ultimately just need to contain the Indians. 
So India is checkmated and forced to stay in its lane. That checkmate on the Indians has a rather negative connotation for the Americans in return. You see, China can only be checked by India or Russia. In an ideal world, the Russians are decoupled from China. However, the US overreaction to the 2022 Ukraine invasion and the near endless US obsession with destroying Russia has created a partnership with Russia and with China that actually is in turn a mortal threat to the US like never before. This partnership leaves the US possessions such as Japan or South Korea at risk. The next best outcome would be for using the Indians then to do to China what Pakistan does to India, if not total war and some kind of low-level border conflict. Japan, the US, Australia and India created what is known as the Quad. In the US mind, this Quad is an alliance. But for the Indians, it's an opportunity to poke the Chinese. For the Indians, it's not an alliance. They do not see Quad as an alliance. Again, and I am repeating, the US overreaction against Russia pushed India away. The Quad is thus a lesser force, and conversely, the Indians have started talks with China to solve their border issue. This is likely a slow, grinding process. The benefit the US has here, though, is that Chinese policy is so ultimately brainless that China on its own could annoy the Indians enough for India not to get into bed with China ever. That being said, though, the BRICS and the SCO can become, in my view, will become a mortal economic challenge to the liberal world order that the US leads. Both the BRICS and the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, have not even one US proxy country in them. That leads me on to the next thing, and in my view, the single most important thing for the United States, that being the US dollar. Now, I've gone and done an entire podcast episode on the petrodollar, so I'm not going to repeat that here. But I will state that the only reason the US can do anything on this issue it's because, unlike China, that needs to go and earn its dollars, the US simply needs to print its dollars, or the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, simply needs to raise or lower interest rates. The US dollar is what fuels the US stock market, pensions, the upward movement of the stock market, the government funding, the government debt, the revenue companies, pay packets, the military, foreign bases, yes, even the military-industrial complex. The United States has the luxury of creating and hosting innovative companies because these companies have access to the reserve currency that can be printed at will. The U.S. stock market and the U.S. Federal Reserve prints at will. So in my view, the U.S. dollar is the most geopolitically important weapon the U.S. has and it needs to be protected at every single level. Because of this reserve currency status, the U.S. dollar sees transactions going through the United States or U.S. banks. Let me give you an example. Say India buys coffee from Brazil. India transfers its dollars to Brazil. The transaction occurs inside the United States. If the U.S. wanted to put sanctions on India, all it has to do is stop the transaction. That's the power of the dollar. And by the way, the U.S. does that all the time. It sanctions and embargoes tons of people, including Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, Russia, Syria, and so on. 
When you do something too often, then you risk exposing yourself. And I worry for the sake of the US and its proxies that the sanctions regimes actually may have been overdone and overused. So much so that when the Russians were being sanctioned in 2022, nothing actually happened to them. They actually thrived. And that's because they had decoupled adequately from the US dollar regime in order to thrive. Other countries took note. One of the minuses of these sanctions and two on how to survive these sanctions. The biggest threat thus to the dollar has been the Western overreaction to Russia on its 2022 invasion of Ukraine and the endless sanctions regime on too many energy producers like Venezuela, like Iran, and then like Russia. Problem with the United States as of today, which is March of 2023, is trustworthiness of the US dollar regime. And the US government has literally been flushed down the toilet. The 2008 to 2009 financial crisis was initially a wake-up call, but most people ignored it. 2022 was a geopolitical wake-up call, and this one the world did not ignore. India and the UAE, for example, are trading in local currency. India and Russia are trading in local currency. Saudi and China are trading in local currencies. Will the US dollar disappear overnight? No, not a chance. But the trends and the threats are now very evident. Biggest threat by far is the Saudi pivot eastwards towards India and towards China. The Saudi government has kept the US petrodollar regime legitimized since 1972. That trust between Saudi and the United States ended in 2021, when the US President Joe Biden was critical of Saudi leaders. All ultimately also then came to a head in 2022, when the US overreaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine led to something called the oil price caps, and sanctions regimes sent shivers down the Saudi spine. Saudi has been diversifying away from the US dollar regime since that point, and this is the single biggest threat to the United States. If I have ever seen a worse policy decision from a US government, other than, say, the 2003 disastrous Iraq invasion, then it is the 2022 sanctions on Russia. In one go, US policy put China and Russia in the same camp, got Saudi and Iran talking peace, moved Saudi to China, India, a traditional US ally, started to wobble at its US closeness, and instead started trading in local currency with US rivals. This is an outcome no one in the US establishment should be happy about. It is a nightmare unfolding. This has alarmed just about everyone else. The US dollar is at risk because of US policy mistakes. On top of all that, and to compound it, you know how I mentioned the US's allies, the proxies and so on. That's the EU, the five eyes, NATO and South Korea. Well, that alliance is nothing without the United States. These countries are the soft underbelly that risks U.S. hegemony. None of these countries, bar maybe Turkey, maybe Hungary, maybe France, can actually do anything, economically or politically, and they cannot do anything militarily. Maybe bar France, maybe bar Turkey, not even Hungary. These countries are weak, literal lapdogs. They are too domesticated, unable to fight real wars, and often riddled with population declines. The US may be their master, but that is not the world. The real world is outside these countries, and primarily India and China. 
So what can the United States do? It's very tough. The United States could just rely on demographics. China's population will decline, while the US could just import humans. Sadly for the United States, people that the US does import en masse typically are illegal from the southern border. However, geopolitics is too important to rely on Chinese population decline going from 1.4 billion in 2023 to 1 billion in 2063. It might actually be a good thing for China in the long term anyway. The US needs to force India and China into some kind of conflict, maybe including Pakistan. It needs to decouple Russia from China. It needs to force Saudi into another regional war. This way, the US can regain single power hegemony. It cannot, after all, reliably rely on any NATO member. Think about it. Germany can't even fight a war for them. The dollar is at risk like no other time since 1945. This decline has overseas momentum. A war somewhere will keep the US dollar as the alpha currency. So a war somewhere needs to happen. I, a random idiot on the internet, me, is articulating this problem. Then let me assure you, the de-dollarization is more advanced than you or I could even imagine. If you live outside the United States, you can see the de-dollarization happening in front of your eyes. But if you live in the West, your mindset is still very status quo. 2022 to 2023 rise in US interest rates has hurt many economies, but the pinch is less obvious in countries that have a mixed trade relationship where they are trading in local currencies. It is also notable that the BRICS countries in Saudi Arabia as well as the UAE have been hoarding more gold to back up their own currencies. These may seem like small things, but there are trends. There is a move away from the dollar regime because it is no longer serving the national interests of those countries. So in conclusion, for the US to retain its great power status, it needs to create chaos inside China, inside India, and in the Middle East. The US policy since 2021 has been to create chaos inside Russia. It is completely the wrong location. And you should not look at any of this with any emotion. International relations are a zero-sum game. China, India, and Russia, as well as Saudi, all have agency of their own to mitigate risks. And they would like to do something to the United States too. They can all react to save themselves or to work towards their own self-interest. If you lack real power, your leadership sucks. You end up like Ukraine or Afghanistan. The United States will retain its great power status for a few more decades, but other countries will come and join it. Its alliances will mean little in the future and the US dollar will not be the only reserve currency. Like I mentioned in an earlier episode, the multipolar world is here and it's here now. The US needs to navigate a post-liberal era to retain and keep its great power status. <laughs>